Hi. Hello. How's your we week? Ha- week is good. We have a okay, bonus good. episode today. I know. Look at that. I can't. It's like a, a new frontier. I, I have to say, I was texting with a straight friend of mine. Yes. And I was you telling have you. Those? I do. I do. See, thank you very okay. much. We have many of them. Several. And he was like, maybe I was telling him about our bonus episode. And he said, maybe I'm just being a child, but should it be boner episode? I was like, <laughs> you are a child just because that, we're gays reading. That is so Beavis and Butthead. I know. 1992. Yeah, he's a boner. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I'm stoked because we have Rashid Newson on today's episode and his The Paperback copy or paperback version the paperback version of his book came out on tuesday my government means to kill me and we mentioned this on the episode but i it's one of the first books that i remember you and i bonding over via instagram yeah and it's funny when i was trying to do this solo career of oh i think i'll do instagram lives and learn how quickly i hated them to do i think for other people they're great but for me not so much but Mm -hmm. he was the first author i approached and he was so gracious at the time and did an Instagram live with me. And he's just a delight. I know. I'm, I and was... we're so lucky to have him on for so many reasons, but not the least of which, because he's very much on the front lines of the WGA strike and so much of our conversation and why we part of why we wanted to release it as this bonus episode right now is so that folks can get a real inside scoop as to what's going on in the strike. Yeah, let's just mention, too, that the book itself, for those people who don't know, and and he will go into some of this, the details of the book, but it was a New York Times notable book. It was a New York Times book review editor's choice, and it was a 2022 Lambda Literary Prize for Gay Fiction finalist. Rashid is a writer and producer of Bel Air, The Shy, and Narcos. He currently resides in Pasadena, California, with his husband and two children. And My Government Means to Kill Me is his debut novel. Debut. Debut, debut. And before we dive into Rashid, I also that just happened on Tuesday, we got the nicest shout out from our friends at Book Talk, etc. Tina and Renee, we can call them our sister book podcast, even though they've been around a lot longer than us, but they're the two gals and we're the two gays, so they could be our sister podcast. So thank you to Tina and Renee. We love them and their podcast too. Check them out, Book Talk, etc. Yes. And they've been doing this for a while. So they have quite a, a backlog of episodes that you can dive into. But yeah, you know, that's really, what I we, do. I like scroll through and I'm like, oh, I want to listen to this one. Oh, I want to listen to that one. Well, and she was talking to about that. Renee was talking about the deepest breath on Netflix because they'll go into a bunch of different. What are they watching? What are they? And I immediately looked it up and put it into my Netflix queue, although I think I'm going to be out of my mind watching it when she explained what the subject was. But anyway, they're fantastic, and if you don't know their podcast, please check them out, because they're great. Uh, and if you do not already own a copy of My Government Means to Kill Me, check out our bookshop.org link in the show notes. You can get your copy there. I'm Jason. I'm Brett. And please enjoy this bonus episode of Gay's Reading. Hello, Rashid. Oh, hello, Brett. Hello, Jason. Hello. Morning. How's it going? Good, good morning. morning. How are you doing? Good, good. I was just saying that we had dinner last night. It was all fine, but I just, I drank. 
And I don't usually drink very much. And, and it wasn't even whatever, but it was enough that I was like, oh, God. Brett's coming to us a little hungover as well. What was the, what's your drink of choice? No, this was literally. It was coming in with the ro- important questions, Rasheed. <laughs> it was rosé, so it wasn't even. Like, oh, oh. rosé took you. Ugh, it's just, it, was, it just kept getting refilled. Wine and dinner parties are dangerous because, like you said, you can't even keep count. No. Every time you turn around to get the, if you were, you were a quarter, you maybe a third was left. Now it's back at the top. I can't do math. No. Hey, people so are filling up half empty glasses. That's exactly right. I gotta say, shout out to you for a number of reasons, but not the least of which, uh, y- you don't only put yourself out there by agreeing to do conversations like this. You are constantly posting on social media. Everything that we post on social media, you are liking and you are, which like means a lot to us, but also keeps keeps your name out there. I don't know how you have the time, although you did just say you're striking right now. I understood that I was going to have to do a lot of work if I wanted to reach the audience because yeah, they're not necessarily being catered to. The pipeline to them isn't really there. So those of us who are working in gay literary fiction, we're building this as we go. Yeah. It's also what I understand from this moment is you've got all these sort of gay literary authors and like that, that that's growing. That field is growing. Yeah. We should be liking and sharing everybody and like just magnifying everything. We're and building a market. And yes, exactly. We're curious to hear more about this past year because that's so fascinating. I think. To us, to our listeners, we're, we're used to talking to folks that are at the beginning of their book journey, and you are still at the beginning. Your baby's the, out. But your baby has been out yeah. in the world. Oh, yeah. Before we yeah. do that, let's tell the listeners, tell us about My Government Means to Kill Me, your baby that has been out in the world for a year now. Absolutely. My Government Means to Kill Me is a book I think people will relate to if they've ever been young. Mm-hmm. If you were ever young once, you'll get this book. This is about a young gay Black man moving to New York. And at first, he's got to do that sort of hierarchy of needs. Where am I going to work? Where am I going to live? Who are my friends going to be? Where am I going to get laid? And if you've ever moved to a city and had to work your way through the list, this will feel familiar. Now, what makes it particular is he's moved to New York in 1985, and he thinks he's going to be this kid in a candy store, and it's the dawn of the AIDS crisis. And this is the story about how some naive kid really selfish in some ways, grows up real fast over the course of two years and finds himself as part of this movement to fight AIDS and becomes one of the founding members of ACT UP. It is a coming-of-age story, but it's both a political and sexual coming-of-age story, Mm -hmm. which is what I thought I could add to the canon. (laughs) So much has been written. This is my contribution. But that is the story of just that time when you are young and everything feels very possible and you are very much trying on personalities and trying to figure out where do I fit mm-hmm. in the spectrum of things. And it's him coming into community. I can't not talk about the footnotes in the book because you say historical fiction and it really leans into it. It's a really great device because it it makes something accessible and you're c- covering so many different facets of life in that time for people who are younger. And Jason, certainly you could speak to this. 
what that experience is, because as someone, I was there during that time for someone who didn't know any of those things. It's such a great intro for them. I will say it was a great intro, but even more, it was a great, it, I don't want to say filled in blanks, but it gave a, a more full picture than the story that I'm used to experiencing, right? Mm-hmm. Seeing the normal heart, first of all, broke me. But second of all, was not the experience of a young Black man in New York City. And I think this perspective was, I think, important for me as a white reader to be like, oh, yeah, there is more than Larry Kramer's perspective. Genius, but there's more to it. And what could an experience have been like that was very different than mine? And how's similar could it have been and how different was it even though it was similar you know what i mean when i was thinking about this book i remember and again nobody meant any malice by this but it was a a gay white man who was just talking about this period and was like wasn't it great how our families took us in and even if they didn't and i was like wait for black for the black community a lot of people just went away Mm. like they were going to die somewhere else and even finding a place to do that was very difficult as you could imagine with with the home hospice situation People just don't, if you bring a white guy into a building in certain neighborhoods in New York, people don't look. You bring one or two black people in, they're like, what's going on over there? Mm -hmm. It just brought more attention and it made it harder. And I don't think I'd really seen that story explored and gone into. And I also wanted to something where the book is written in first person and it's written from Trey's POV. And I needed something broader than what someone remembering being 17 to 19 could bring to bear. And what that is, you you join New York City or you join any industry or movement, you're really jumping into something that's been going on for decades and decades. And I wanted the reader to have some sort of context for why this particular moment was happening at all. Mm. And the footnotes gave me a chance to almost give you this underground history of what was what's called the homophile movement in America. One great thing about being on a television show is there are always people who are fresh out of college all, you know, working as production assistants. And I asked them while I was working on this, have you heard of Larry Kramer? And thank goodness they had. They were like, yeah, he's a gay rights activist. What do you know about Larry Kramer? What was his personality like? And they had nothing. Angry. But they don't, but they don't know that. <laughs> right? They don't yeah. know. And, and, and it's a big personality. But all they know is during Pride Month, he was there next to Marsha Washington and James Baldwin, and you memorize those names, mm-hmm. but you don't actually know the flavor of these people. And I wanted to give them that. And that meant that I had to, it had to do some, it had to do some work to make that accessible. Yeah. And it works in the package of the book that you're presenting too, right? It's not, it's not a history book. Right. But it is. And really, I can't even think of a person like Larry Kramer, who today, when I saw the normal heart on Broadway after the show, he was standing outside handing out flyers with his bullhorn doing the thing. Yeah. Because he, in his soul, was an activist and was standing outside saying, that was political. Now go get some shit done. Yeah. Yeah. I can't think of anybody who's like that right now who is creating art and then making people act on it in the moment, in real time. Yeah, he was a fascinating character. And Um, not easy. And that's the... Yeah. That's the part I want to grapple with. 
is that a lot of these people are very complex and they're not, um, they're not walking the park. Yeah. I mean, somebody was telling me at a, at a book fair the other day that they once got an angry fax from Larry Kramer. They were putting together like a book there and somebody said, you better ask Larry Kramer to be a part of this. And he was, they were like, I don't know, Larry's so busy. I don't know if that he would, uh, but they get forced into doing it. I'm just going to ask him as a formality and he'll probably say I'm too busy and leave it at that. Oh no. Larry said a fax saying your work is worthless. It is a waste of time and you should stop doing it. And by the way, I won't be sending you an essay. There are stories of him going out of his way to be mean. And, and you had to punch in all of those numbers on that fax machine. Could you imagine <laughs> the effort, the effort, right? But that's, I don't think those stories disqualify somebody from being revered. I don't think yeah. they take away from the other from the work. Sure. I just think let's just put it all in the portrait. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's an interesting transition. I do want to hear a little bit more about this past year and your time on tour and what you've learned about the book. But before we go back to that, because we're talking about activism, Larry Kramer, can we talk about the strike? Yes. WWLD. What would Larry do? <laughs> you have been involved. We've seen you on the picket lines. Can you explain for our listeners, for those who don't know, the, the broad thrust of what it is the writers are asking for? Sure. And let me start just to give with this context. Every three years, the writer's contract comes up for renegotiation. And it basically deals with things like minimum pay, some work conditions, what they're going to contribute to the health plan, the pension fund, and they being the studio. And this year, we are asking for some sense of revenue sharing when things go into streaming. When we last had a strike in 2008, that was the first time we got any profit for what was then called new media streaming. And the way it was played, it was like, this doesn't even make a lot of money. There are not millions of people watching this online. And so they gave us a really, a, a very thin slice of the pie. The pie got much bigger and they won't even give us the numbers on how many people watch their show. My uh, writing partner, TJ Brady, and I helped co-develop Bel Air on Peacock. And it's a re dramatic reimagining of the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. We worked on that show and we had no idea what the ratings for the show were. Every episode after episode, you go, how many people watch? How many people are watching? We finally got some idea into the rating because Peacock was so proud of the number and wanted to prove that they were gaining traction as a service that they finally admitted, oh, we've had 11 million people watch Bel Air. But until that moment, until they turned that over to the Wall Street investors, I had been working on a show in the blind, mm -hmm. unsure of how successful or unsuccessful the show was. Mm -hmm. And that has real ramifications. One, not only for how what's my participation as somebody who helped create it. But day to day, they're talking to you like you're doing a mediocre job. And mm -hmm. in fact, you've launched a hit and you don't know it. But that's a little bit of a tangent. Right now, the big issues are room size. We would like to set uh, a minimum uh, number of writers in a room. You have a drama, you have a comedy, you need to hire this many writers. There has been a bit of a move towards just hiring one writer to write them all. That would have disastrous effects for our pension plan, our health fund, if that model gets perpetuated. The other one is AI. They seem to be fooling around with it. They seem eager to bring it into the workplace. It could be the death knell of our business if suddenly all the ideas or all the scripts are suddenly being generated by AI and you're only asking a human being to do the rewrites or the polish. That really decimates our ranks. And I don't think it'll be great for viewers either. 
And then the the last one is revenue sharing and streaming. Like we'd like to peek at the numbers. I think that one's going to actually be harder than AI. I think they're really hard pressed to give that. But something extraordinary has happened that has never happened before. Shows used to get canceled. That was the end of it. Maybe they could live in reruns. But you have something now where Suits has been off the air for four seasons. Right. Huge hit on Netflix. People have rediscovered a new audience has rediscovered it. Those of us who, people who worked on that show, created that show, should be seeing some of the benefits of that renewed success. And right now you're stuck on a residual schedule that's treating your show as if it's old news and not one of their top earners. When something becomes one of their top earners, we should be getting a slice of that pie too. So those yeah. are the major issues. It's interesting that you very specifically say suits because scrolling through Netflix yesterday, that was, it literally came up as most popular on Netflix. Suits was one of them. And that's, you never, you've never, we've never seen that before in the yeah. business model sense. Like, even if a show like Cheers was popular in reruns, it didn't subtly make the Nielsen top 10. Mm-hmm. And what does it mean if, this show that you did four years ago is suddenly making hundreds of millions of dollars for the person who's airing it now. And they're sending you pennies on the dollar as if your work isn't still generating them tremendous profits. I was watching Mandy Moore talking last week about This Is Us and how popular that's been and getting these residual checks for literally pennies. Actors got screwed more than writers. I can say that. I also, I can, I feel like I can say that without fear of contradiction. As a writer, my pay has been my pay. Apparently, they've had a practice among actors where they've been saying, here's your quote. Here's where we're going to pay you for the episode. But a large chunk of that is actually an advance on your residual pay. Oh, wow. So that when the residual checks show up, the reason they're so small is they're like, we gave you 10 grand up front. And that wasn't even being made clear to a lot of the actors, Hmm. but that's what that meant. They thought, you know, my quote is 30,000 an episode. I thought I was getting my quote. In fact, they were paying me $20,000 in salary, $10,000 in advance residual payments. So really they undermined my quote by a third and they've mortgaged out my future. And that's why those checks come in at a penny and you're like, you're on a massive hit. And they're looking at you like, you already took your money, but you didn't know it. Right. And to go back to AI for a second, I think something that people don't necessarily understand or realize or think about is that for artificial intelligence to come up with some idea, it is getting content from somewhere. Yeah. Right. And so people don't think, oh, it's pooling from the internet or from whatever algorithms, things I will never understand myself, but it doesn't come from nowhere. And so all of those initial ideas came from somewhere first. (laughs) It comes from work first, and it also, it, it takes advantage of a real vulnerability in the creative marketplace, which is, it's very hard to prove someone stole your idea. Mm-hmm. Unless it's verbatim, it's very hard to prove. And in fact, you can do a lot of ideas, and if you do the smallest of tweaks on them, it's suddenly your idea. If I do Moby Dick in space, I can actually sell it as that. I can go, hey, the show is Moby Dick in space, instead of the way it works chasing this thing across the galaxies. And suddenly that's my take on it. So the idea that this AI could harvest all of our work and then make one or two changes, and then they think they've got something original, right? is that it's heartbreaking. And because I know we'll probably never be able to beat them in court unless you can show 
that they took directly from your stuff, which I think there's some lawsuits now. Sarah Silverman is among people suing them because it's actually, this is verbatim mine and you've mm-hmm. got it. But for every case that happens, there'll be dozens more where they've robbed us, but made enough necessary changes that we won't actually be able to punish them in court. Wow. And, and then, of course, you have the writer who's then hired to to clean, to tweak, to rewrite or whatever, and they don't know where that initial idea came from. You know what I mean? So then yeah, all of a no, sudden, it's, it's a like... a really bad position because yeah. what that writer will be is by the time you get to that point, our ranks have been so decimated, people are desperate for a job. And they may not feel good about it, but they've got to pay the bills. And so they'll take a job doing the rewrite of some AI script. Oh, man, it's just it, it's not going to be the Hollywood dream they had in mind. One of the other things I love that's happened, and it's it's actually a shift from the start of my career. I think I started, I, I've been in the writer's group 15 years. So when I came on, it was like Matt Weiner and Mad Men, Sopranos, I think was headed towards. Yeah. Mm. There was the thought of the auteur writer creator. And this idea that I write something and they, they, they only say the words I write and right. know, exactly the way I wanted it. Okay. I'm not doubting that happened here and there. <laughs> Most of TV and what TV is beautiful and what I love about TV, this is a collaborative art and we've got our scripts. You get down there on the day, you've got the pressure on the day. Like maybe this, maybe you had two pages for a scene. You've now got an hour and a half to shoot it and two pages. You got to cut this. We'll never make the day. My favorite is I, we were on Bel Air, we were going to play on a lacrosse field and the character, when we wrote it, he misses the, the lacrosse ball or whatever. And he says, oh, the sun was in my eye. When you looked up at the sky that day, you could not find the sun. It's as gray as could be. Somebody's got to rework that line. Someone's got to rework what the actors feel when they get there and they go, I don't, I just don't, I know I've been working on this. I don't feel like, I don't think I can say this. What if we said that? So much of what you love about television came alive Mm. on the set between a a writer, an actor, and a director, human being, having a conversation under great pressure, mind you, to make this more believable and make it work. AI can't do any of that. How about on a multicam when studio notes throw out a script and you've got two days to get it back on its feet to do it, and they've got a gangbang out of script and get it out in 24 hours? Oh, my that happens all the time with all multi-camps. The time. I was when I was a PA, when I was a production assistant back in my youth, I was on a show once and it was a comedy. And the writer said to me, the audience was cold, like just not laughing. And the writer, one of the writers said, if they don't laugh at this next joke, when this next scene, we're going to have to just rewrite this script on the floor. Mm-hmm. Like it just isn't happening. And the next joke bombed. They rewrote it on the spot. It, it did get better. It took so long, though, that they had to let the audience go. And this is one of my first Hollywood memories. They ordered more pizza. They had all of us production assistants, everybody who wasn't free, to stand next to the cameras eating our pizza at 2 in the morning. And as the actors went through the scene, we laughed maniacally over and over again to give them pacing so that when they put the laugh track in later, it wouldn't jam together. And I thought, this is show business. My God, I love it. You've arrived. I've arrived. Just tell my mom. Wow. Yeah. No, there always is that thing watching all those writers immediately when the first, you don't, the joke does not land. The audience isn't taking it. All the writers converge. They run to the set. Then you shoot it again. And they get to all of that. 
And it's interesting to compare a book to streaming. The difference is someone a year later can go buy My Government Means to Kill Me in the bookstore, and that does mean something to you. There can be a resurgence. I think about books, The Queen's Gambit is a great example or that comes to mind immediately. It came out in like the 80s, but no one paid any mind to that book until the Netflix series came out. And then mm. the book was on a bestseller list. You know what I mean? So that's so fascinating. Yeah, no, I think I was very clear. I did not think this was going to be like, oh, a New York Times bestseller. But I thought we could get a good review from the New York Times. And we did. And I think this book is a perennial. Black History Month comes every year. Gay Pride comes every year. I expect you get. And those are two different months. And I expect to see this book on the list of things you should read in those months for the rest of my natural life. Yes. Amen. And... What I'm hoping, I'm glad the paperback's coming out. That's another audience. There are people who just don't buy hardback. They're too expensive. They're going to wait until it comes out in paperback. Students buy paperback. I want to be, I want this book on the curriculum. I want to be homework. And I think that is something that can grow over the next several years and grow as I write more books that people, maybe they get on the next one. They go, I should read the first one. Right. I mean, that's that I never. I understood that this was something that was going to take years. Because you have been on this strike and you are a creative individual. How are you, what are you doing with yourself in this time? How are you fulfilling writing those the next kind of- novel? Now, here's something my writing partner and I and some other collaborators are working on making My Government Means to Kill Me into a musical. <laughs> so we're going to have a stage reading soon and just we're, we're trying to get into the incubator stage of that. That's my background. I wanted to hear about that. Oh, my goodness. It's fun. We've had to pare it down, right? You can't do the whole book on the stage. Who's writing it? Um, So TJ and I wrote the book. Uh, The music and lyrics are by Caleb Martin. And I was a collaborator of mine. And like, we're just, we're having a great time. I'm, I'm really excited. I think sometimes there are works that actually suffer when people put expectations on them that that people never hope. Like they were never going to get people in to do, you know. So I, I want to be very cognizant of that. I wanted to see it live, but I think it lives at a certain altitude. Yeah. Good. And, Good for you for having and, that. And that's where I sort you know. Yeah. Before we go, I have to say how obsessed I am with your shirt. This is for podcast listeners. I know. For it, listeners it, typed, the word, there's a typed word happy and there's a red line through it. And above it, someone has written the word glad. This is a real... My writing partner made this shirt because mm. we turned in a script once and the showrunner did this. We had written happy and he crossed it out and said, no, it should be glad. And that is the sort of petty nonsense that sometimes happens in television where you're just like, really? Do you, is there an appreciable difference? Like, why? Why did you? I, you just had to justify your salary. Yeah. So we made a shirt out of it. I'm like, this is what some people think writing is. Is that his actual handwriting? Was yeah. that, is that the, we copied, we copied, <laughs> it, copied it, blew it up. It is one of my favorite shirts. And it also, by the way, it, it's been good because we were coming up the ranks that now we're showrunners and we're the ones who go through the scrap. Mm-hmm. I, I keep this shirt because you don't want to become this guy. There are times where I, sometimes you catch yourself and you're like, why are you doing? just leave it alone? I, for one, I'm very glad to meet you. <laughs> I will say I'm happy. You can be happy to meet me. I'm glad to meet you. Thank you for doing this. I think there's this idea that sort of goes around popular culture that like 
gays have taken over all of media and entertainment. And the truth is the reputation is scant and it's sporadic. And there are whole genres and areas where we barely have a toehold. And this, the fight to have that representation, to have those voices out there is a fight. Yeah. It's not, I don't take it for granted that I can just keep writing books. They had better sell. I've got to, I've got to have the numbers. Nobody's going to just publish me because it's the nice thing or the good thing to do. Yeah. It had better be profitable. Thank you for saying that. I will say we, we're finding there is an, there's another interesting thought that gay people only read gay books. And there's this balance of both things, right? It's we want to amplify voices that are perhaps not getting attention that are that's deserved. But also, let's talk to a straight writer about their book from a perspective that is not another straight person. Yeah. And I think that there is value in both things. And I think for non LGBTQIA identifying authors to understand that their readership goes beyond who they are as people is, I think, important too. But it's been really humbling for us to see the authors who are coming out of the woodwork who want to participate in this. And it's just these authors who are like, I want to talk to other gay people about my work. No. Yeah. No. Which is so fantastic. But we love the book so much. Love Congratulations it. Congratulations on, on the paperback love, release. Thank you for having me in your debut season. We wouldn't have had it any other way. I have to say, this book was among the first that Brett and I bonded over. I I feel like we read it roughly around the same time Mm -hmm. we checked in about, because we met through Instagram, through the book world. So it was seeing what each other was reading that really brought us together. So thank you, too. Keep fighting the good fight with this strike. I hope that it ends shortly and smoothly. Thank you. you Thank you. I can't tell. There's a little, as we talk now, both sides are going to return to the negotiating table yeah. Friday. Yeah. It remains to be seen if there's been substantive change on the side of the studio or if they just know it's a bad look not to be at the negotiating table. We'll find out. Mm. Yeah, so I think we will look strikes in. So we will get yeah. to, we will get to another day here. This, the toll is considerable. Yeah. Sure. It's sad that we'll never know what was lost. Some brilliant writers and actors, they're going to, they're just going to go home. Yeah, they're not going to be able to stick this out, and 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 I feel bad. The last thing we actually need in the business is for it to be a business where only people who come from money can participate. Correct, correct. That is, woo. but we've got people who. By the time I got to be a staff writer at twenty nine, I had thirty thousand dollars in like personal loans, like those loans where they're like, here's five thousand dollars, eight thousand dollars cash. I'm not an irresponsible person, but in order for me to stay here and pay my bills on time, I knew they were predatory. I had to take them. I had to take them. And some people won't do that, can't do that. But I understand that just staying here so that you can be ready for the opportunity when it comes is incredibly expensive. Yeah. Yeah. It's not cheap and it's an expensive city. All of it. It's. By the way, I've said this was 20 something years ago. Now it's only gotten worse. Yeah. Absolutely. And and people's pay rates are still the same. <laughs> Do you have any books that you want to shout out for our readers oh, and listeners? It was Vulgar and It Was Beautiful by Jack Lowry, oh. which is real history, but just gorgeous. Um, Play Susie by uh, Jeffrey Dale Lofton is good. Oh, that's great. Thanks that's so much, awesome. Rashid. I'm glad yeah, to be here. Yeah, this was lovely. 
Thank you. Amazing. Mazel tov. Thanks so much, Rashid. And thanks to all of our listeners. It's This has been such a pleasure so far. Again, if you don't have a copy of the book, check out in the show notes our link to the bookshop.org page. And if you like what you're hearing, if you're having a good time, rate us, review us, share us with your friends. Five stars. We love a five stars. We do. <laughs> Mambo number five stars. <laughs> and we will see you next time at our regularly, regular, regularly scheduled, regularly scheduled time. <laughs> on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs>